Well, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting week in my preparation for this sermon. First off, I preached on Wednesday night for the first time ever, I think, and so that threw me completely off. <laughs> but if you were here Wednesday night, we had some really good discussion and um, just some really, really good a really good time of learning about evangelism and the gospel. And if if you've been here, I've been preaching through the book of Nahum. And I, I thought God was going to take me away from that for a minute. But as I continue to read and I continue to study, and then we were at the conference in Bowlegs this week and heard several different preachers and it just kept coming back to this. So we are going to be in the book of Nahum, if you would turn there. And we're going to start in verse 8. In, in chapter 2, verse 8. And so, Lord willing, I'm going to go through the rest of this book. So finish chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I think you'll see why. As we go through, as we get to chapter 3, the remainder of this chapter is mostly talking about judgment, which the entire book is talking about judgment. So just a little bit of a recap, then we'll get into this text today. Nahum happened, for those of you that haven't been here, Nahum happened about 100 years after Jonah preached to Nineveh. Jonah, much more familiar story, Jonah went to Nineveh. Preached the gospel. Of course, that was after he got swallowed by a big fish. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the gospel. And the Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, repented. And they, they turned to God. And these were, these were Gentiles. These were Assyrians. They were not Jews. But they repented and they turned to God. But now we're a hundred years later. And they have turned back to their wicked ways. The city of Nineveh was the largest city in the world at the time. It was about 120, 130,000 people. If you understand ancient times at all, you understand 130,000 people in a city in that time was extremely difficult to create. It actually was an engineering phenom with the aqueducts and things that ran in order to get water and to all those people and everything that was going on. It was an incredible city. Assyria, it was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was the most powerful country in the world by far. And they were an extremely wicked people. That's the reason Jonah didn't want to go there. And we, all, we can all get kind of down on Jonah. Like, I can't, he, didn't just, he just didn't do what God said. Well, that's just true. But he didn't want to go there because he knew God was a merciful God, and he knew if he went and preached to them, they would repent. He didn't want mercy for the Assyrians. And we can, we can look down on that if we want to, but if you understand how the Assyrians had treated Israel, you might not be, you would probably emphasize, or, or imp, imp, what's the word? You would have empathy for Jonah. They were wicked. I mean, and probably beyond our imagination. Beyond what we see, maybe maybe if you go back to like the Holocaust time, you could see this this manner of wickedness. Maybe in some Middle Eastern countries, they would they would stack heads up like pyramids 
They would, they would, they called flailing. They would cut strips of skin off people's backs while they're alive and decorate their palaces with them. Wicked, wicked people. I won't go into all that detail, but that's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with that. And so through this, the first two and a half chapters, we've seen Nahum is coming to him and saying, it's, it's gone too far. God's judgment is coming. And he specifically states, he's prophesying specifically of how this is going to happen. And this is like, you know this is true prophecy because nobody else would have had the boldness to even speak against Assyria. And nobody would have believed this apart it being from God. Assyria is going to fall? What, Nineveh is going to fall? This is highly fortified. It has the Tigris River on one side, which makes it basically impossible to attack from that side. And it's highly fortified, surrounded by conquered area, and the most powerful army in the world. And you think it's just going to fall? Nahum says, yes, judgment is coming. So that's where we are. And we'll start in verse 8. Let me pray, and we will get started. Father, I thank you again for this day, and I pray, Lord... God, I pray that as, as we look at this scripture, that we would understand your justice. And that we, we would understand your judgment, which would in turn allow us to understand your mercy and your grace. God, we want to know you. We want to know that mercy. We want to understand how gracious you are. I pray that this message would help us to see that. I pray that it would help us to see that judgment is indeed coming, and it is indeed necessary, but there is an escape, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so verse 8, chapter 2, Nahum, chapter 2, verse 8. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away, halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. At that time, the city of Nineveh It was like an oasis in the desert. Anyone that would travel nearby to Nineveh would wind up going to Nineveh for several reasons. One, there were resources there. Traveling in those times were hard. It was hard. So if you got close, you could go there. There was water. There was food. There were supplies. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, there was an intricate aqueduct. And, I mean, it's incredible as they've uncovered parts of Nineveh to find some of the things that they had there. These aqueducts would run through the city, and they had public parks and gardens and things that we, most cities don't even have today, a lot of them. You know, and, and the people could go and enjoy it. So people would go there to get supplies out of necessity. But also, with, as with any big city we have now, people go there for recreation. Right? This was a place you would go for education. The, the, the king of Assyria, whose palace was in Nineveh, he created the library. His name was Ashurbanipal, Ashurbanipal, and he created a library there. It contained over 30,000 clay tablets. If you don't understand ancient history at all, clay tablets were like books of the time. If you have a 30,000-book library today, that's, that's a big library. That's incredible. Well, this thing had 30,000 clay tablets. So 
you're talking the center of education of the world as well. So people would go there to get educated. People that wanted to learn something, they could go there just to go to the library. Uh, so highly educated scholars of the day would flock to Nineveh. The palaces there were beautiful, and the king's palace had over 80 rooms. He called it the palace without rival. It was huge, fantastic, amazing for that time. The place was incredible. It was a beautiful city. It was like an oasis in the middle of the desert. You know, if you were traveling through the desert, you're seeing mostly sand, maybe some sort of little shrubs and just different little things that will barely grow, you know, because it's so hot and dry. And then all of a sudden you see an oasis and there's palm trees and water and something's green. It's the only green you see. You can see it from miles away, right? And you would automatically, no matter which way you're going, I'm going over there. I'm going to take a little break. Well, that's what... That's what Nineveh was in that time. But it says, it, the Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, but what's it say? Now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. Now the people that were all once attracted like moths to a flame, all of a sudden are scared and running like rabbits out of a fire. There's no one stopping them. There's no one going, halt, halt. Why? The city is falling. The judgment is coming. Verse 9. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. Now the country... You think about Assyria and how long they had been in power for hundreds of years. And how much spoil... How many, how many spoils they have taken from, their, from the countries that they had conquered. Tons and tons, literal tons of gold, tons of silver, and it would have been stored, much of it in that palace, much of it in the other palaces of the rich. The, the, the spoils of Israel were stored there. And now the, the, how, the city that had housed the spoils of so many countries was now ransacked. And the riches that Assyria had fought so hard to get suddenly belonged to somebody else. They couldn't hold them. They never, you never can. Not for eternity, right? So they were gone. The, the spoils were gone. Verse 10 says, She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. She's empty. I, I mentioned it another time. It was, it was a very short period of time the city of Nineveh was completely covered up with dirt, completely covered up with sand. When they started uncovering it, and still a large part of it is covered up to this day, they started excavating and, and digging it up. It was nothing but a mound of dirt, like it was never in existence. And that's what God said. That's what Nahum said back in chapter 1. It, it will be like it was never there. And so that's what we see now. She's desolate. She's waste. This great, amazing, powerful city has become nothing. It's over. The once proud and haughty faces of the, Nineveh, the Ninevites are now pale and white with fear. In verse 11 and 12, it says, Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? 
Where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. We're seeing, what we're seeing here is actually a mocking. Nahum, through the Holy Spirit, is mocking the once powerful Assyria. No, he's no longer describing Nineveh's fall. Nahum now taunts her, ridiculing her fall from power and glory. Like a pride of lions with plenty to eat and in fear of no enemy, Nineveh had ruthlessly torn in pieces her prey. But she is now the prey. It's somewhat ironic. They, they've uncovered some of the things in the palace that they've uncovered. There were pictures of the Assyrian princes. Lion hunting was a big sport for them. There's pictures of them hunting lions. And I think, I think that's part of why it's written like this. You were once the lion. You were once the pursuer. You were once the predator. And what has happened? You've become the prey. You would once tear your enemies limb from limb and stack them up in your palaces, in your gardens. And now the, 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 the tables have turned, right, as they say. She is the prey. Now the lion is another. In verse 13, where we're going to spend a little bit of time, it says, Behold, I am against you says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, is the most feared thing a nation or an individual can hear. I am against you. It's the most feared position one can have. Think about throughout the history of the Bible up to this point. Think of, think of some of those who the Lord of her host turned against. He turned against the whole world in the days of Noah. Other than Noah and his family, the entire world. What did God do when he turned against them? When God said, I am against the world... He destroyed the world. Utter desolation. How about the whole world in the days of Babylon? How about Sodom and Gomorrah? God said, I am against these cities. They've sinned against me and I have turned my face against them. And Abraham tried to reason with him. Abraham tried to deal with him. And he could not. And what did he do? He utterly destroyed them. Wiped them off the face of the earth. Same way that he's doing Nineveh now. What about with Pharaoh? I've been going through the, the, the plagues in a clipping hour. God turned his face against Pharaoh. What did he do? Just constant judgment, constant punishment. Destroyed the nation of Egypt. Turn to Ezekiel 30, verse 22. A few other examples. There's, there's many examples. 
in the scriptures of what happens when God turns against, when his face is against you. Ezekiel 30:22 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. Psalm 34:16 says, The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of of them from the earth. What happens if the Lord is against you? You will be destroyed. Your memory will be cut off. In other words, you, you'll, you'll become insignificant. Your memory will be insignificant. And as we look at chapter 3 back in Nahum, we're going to see a description of that in more detail. And so as I go through chapter 3, I'm, going to go, I'm not going to go through all the details that I normally would with each verse, uh, because we don't have time. But I want to go through the, the chapter as, an, as a whole, and I will discuss some of it. And then we're going to see, as a whole, we're going to see what, what it looks like when God is against you. So chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. And so again, we get a description of this city. Now remember, the world looks at this city, and it's, it's very interesting. When I look at, I, as I was studying Nineveh, I, I can look at all the different history aspects of it. And when you look at all the secular historians, they all describe how awesome Nineveh was. This amazing, ancient city. This thing is incredible. It's very similar now to if you talk to a big part of the world about some of our cities. How amazing is New York City? It's this amazing hub of trade, and it's a, it's a sight for the world. But what's going on in the inner New York City? You know? And that's the way it is when we look at Nineveh. All the historians are saying, this thing was beautiful. It was amazing. It was incredible. But what does the Bible, what does God say about Nineveh. He says, woe to the bloody city that's full of lies and robberies. Its victim never departs. The world sees things differently than God does, and the world sees things differently than we should. We should be seeking to look at these cities and our towns and everything else that we come across the way that God sees it, the way that Scripture sees it, and not the way the world sees it. And so we get this description of this awful, bloody city. And so just because a city is beautiful, just because a city has a lot of people and a lot of money, that's how, that's how cities are judged a lot. Oh, it's a wealthy place. There's, not a lot of, there, there's a lot of industry there. There's a lot of job opportunities there. But just because it has a lot of people and money, just because a city has a high level of education and culture does not mean it is a good city. That's what Nineveh was. Had the highest education, highest form of culture, great industry, great wealth. But yet God says it's a bloody city full of lies and robbery. 
verse 2, it says, The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. This is what it looks like when God's face is against you. The invading army has come. The invading army is there. The, the walls have fallen. They've come in to the city. You'll hear the sound of horses, the sound of chariots. You'll have the sight and smell of death and destruction. That's all Nineveh knows now. That's all Nineveh has known, but they've always been on the other side of it. In verse 4, because of the multitudes of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. This is some extremely harsh language. Look at, look at what it really says. I'm going to say this. I don't want to be crude, but I, I, you, you have to get what Nahum is saying here. You have to get what the Holy Spirit is saying here. He calls it the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot. What does that mean? It means he's saying Nineveh is the whore of whores. That's what he's saying. Nahum mocks this charming madam. We have got to see this in our culture today. There are many charming madams. There are many people who are trying to dress up and look pretty, but on the inside, they are raving wolves. They are dead bones. She's actually a devilish mistress of witchcraft. That's what Nineveh was. But to the world, she was the most beautiful, most powerful city in the world. O. Palmer Robertson said, look at, he said, Look at the soul of this harlot dressed in finery of love. This common street whore gratifies her own lust for manipulation, then wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. Calvin said this. He said, it is necessary that those who are too self-indulgent and delicate should be roughly handled. People of authority tend to mask their grossest behavior by a pretended air of astonishment that anyone should dare to question their, their morality. If you don't believe that, take a look at what's going on around us. We have, we have this exact thing happening all over us. We're not talking about just government, although it's very apparent in the government. But this is happening in churches. This is happening in businesses, private businesses, corporate businesses, governments, schools. It's happening everywhere. What, what is it? People of authority mask their grossest behavior. They wipe their mouth and say, I've done nothing wrong. It is incredible to me how wicked people can be. If you were here this morning... We had a review from last time about total depravity. And, and, and he very well taught that we don't believe people are as bad as they can be. But I'll tell you this. 
it seems like they're getting worse. Outside of Christ, the, the, the divide of people is becoming greater. Christians are becoming, we have to become more sanctified while the world is, is showing their hand more and more. They're becoming less and less moral creatures. That's where we're at. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this language. He says, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your fame, your shame. There it is again. It is in it is incredibly scary to hear that I am against you. He says, I will put you to shame. There's a coming a time when the vileness that is being celebrate, celebrated will be exposed and put to shame. We have a vileness in this country. We have a vileness in this time across the world that is being celebrated. And it's not just... The, the gay and lesbian movement, although that's part of it. But it's not just that. We got there through other vile means. We've compromised as Christians. We've compromised with our language. We've compromised with our actions. We've, we've allowed too much to go forward. And that vileness, there's a time when that's going to be put to shame in verse 6, he says, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. And that's what's happening with Nineveh. Its destruction is inevitable. In verse 7, it shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Once again, the most powerful city in the world laid waste. And there will be no one to comfort her. There will be a celebration at her fall. Why will there, why, why will there be such a celebration at her fall? Well, because everybody that was benefiting from it are going to die. Everybody that was benefiting from the evil empire of Assyria is going to die in this judgment. And everybody else in the world was stepped on by them for them to get to that point. Everybody else in the world had been subdued, counting Israel. So you remember Israel, God's chosen people at that time. This, this judgment that's coming on Assyria is for their redemption. This judgment that's coming on Assyria is to liberate Israel. You can't have both. And so when, what, that's what's happening. So whenever she falls, the rest of the world will rejoice. There's an individual lesson in this for us as well. If you climb a ladder of any sorts and don't care who you step on to get to the top, then there will be nobody left to help you when you need help. That's something to think about as we pursue careers, as we pursue different things in life. Maybe you're climbing a corporate ladder. Maybe you're looking for different job positions. Maybe you're trying to position yourself in some sort of family inheritance. Maybe it's some sort of competition. I don't know. There's all kinds of different levels that we climb in this world. 
And I'm for that. You want to you want to move up in your job. You want to advance in in your life, right? But you want to be careful in how you go about it. If you are taking no prisoners and using people, lying to people, using all kinds of ungodly methods to get there, when you get to the top, you will need help. Nobody's getting out of this life without help. Nobody's getting through this life without help. That's how God has designed us. We have to have one another. We have to have other people. And so when you get there, or when you fall, you'll need somebody to pick you up. And if you've clobbered everybody on the way up there, then there will be nobody else. And there will be a celebration at your fall. That's what we're seeing with Nineveh. That's what we're seeing with the individual people of Nineveh as well. Especially the king. And then verse 8, we see a little piece of history here. Are you better than Noamon that was situated by the river that had the waters around her whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? So he's, he's asking a question here. Noamon was the great capital of southern Egypt several hundred years before this. And actually it was Assyria that wound up taking that city. It was 400 miles south of Cairo. And at that time, it was the most magnificent, magnificent civilization in the world. It was guarded by the Nile River, the same way that Nineveh is guarded by the Tigris River. And it fell in 663 B.C. to Assyria. Nobody thought it would. Nobody thought it could. It was impossible. That city's impossible. It's impenetrable. And it fell. And so God's saying, what, do you think you, you think you can't fall? You think you're better than that one? No matter how powerful the worldly empire, God can and will bring them down as he chooses. And he can do it like he did with Jericho, where they just marched around it, blew the trumpets, and the walls fell. Or he can use a neighboring country, a neighboring empire, to come in and invade it as he is with Nineveh. But he can do it however he chooses. Verse 9, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubum were your helpers. Yet she, she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. He's talking about Noamon still. But it, was the power, it was the most powerful city in the world. It fell. And it, mighty was the fall of it. And the same is going to happen to you, Nineveh. Have you not learned from history? Do you, do you think you're greater than these? And then as we look at these next four, three or four verses, we see God's description of how feeble Nineveh really is. In reality, we can also see just how feeble we really are apart from God. So look at verse 11. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. So you strong, powerful warriors, you're going to be hiding You're going to be drunk, you're going to be ashamed, and you're going to be hiding from this enemy. Verse 12, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Anybody been around fruit trees? Any? I know Randy has. He's picked a lot of peaches in his life. 
we have several peach trees, and you have to be like extremely gentle with them. They're like a delicate flower. And when the fruit starts getting ripe, I can't hardly even mow around them because if I bump a limb, that they fall. Right? It's nothing. That stem is barely holding on. That's what he says about the Ninevites. You're just like a fig tree. If I shake you, you're collapsing. Just a, just a description of how weak you are. Verse 13, surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. And I know this isn't exactly politically correct for this day, but what he's saying there is your warriors are a bunch of girls, a bunch of feeble women. That's what you are. He says your gates are wide open. Nineveh had extremely strong Gates, amazing gates that had kept people out for 200 years. And he says, they're white. They are nothing to me, God says. You think those gates are going to stop me? I can, I can pop them wide open anytime I want to. Your bars are on fire. They'll stop nothing. Verse 15, or verse 14. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Makes the strong brick kiln. Build it up. Go ahead. Get ready. Get all your water ready. It's going to do you no good. Verse 15. There, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like swarming locusts. God's saying, do all you can. Go make yourselves like the swarm of locusts. Get as many people gathered together in this city as you want, and it will do you no good. And this is the lesson that we need to see when we see the judgment of God. You cannot fight against it. You can't. It will come on you and you will have absolutely no power. Paul Washer said it will be like a gnat banging his head against a piece of granite. And that doesn't even describe it. You have absolutely no power against God. And there's many people. This is the, this is the part that I hope pricks us in the heart today. I hope it penetrates our soul and gives us a compassion. Because there are so many people today that God is against. The Lord of hosts is saying to people, I am against you. And when you read this, that is a concern for us as Christians He says, you've multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locusts plunder and flies away. Nineveh had the largest army in the world and it didn't matter. The armies that invaded swept through like a swarm, swarm of locusts devouring anything in their path. And left nothing but waste, wasteland in their wake as they moved on. They didn't even keep the city. They didn't even take it as their own. They just destroyed it and moved on. 
Look at verse 17 and 18. Your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. The leaders of Assyria were vast in number. But at this time, they're found inept, ineffective, and essentially looking after their own interests. Where are they? Where's these mighty princes of Assyria? When the battle started raging, all those that had been so suppressive, that had caused so much grief, that had killed so many people, that had caused so much torture on people, whenever they started losing, they disappeared. They ran for the hills. And that's just like man. There are many armies in the history of the world that were the exact same way. And we're seeing it there. And he says in verse 19, Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? And so as we come to the end of this book, Nahum, having declared the utter futility of all human resources that Nineveh might muster in their self-defense, the prophet now comes to his final word. He forces them to acknowledge the tragic proportions of their collapse as an empire. And just so you know, shortly after this prophecy was proclaimed, Nineveh fell. This was not a call to repentance like Jonah had given them. Jonah gave them a call to repentance. They repented. And for a hundred years they lived, or we, I mean, at least a, a period of time, they lived for God. There were Ninevites, Assyrians, that lived for God. But at this point it was a call of judgment. They clapped their hands over you. A vigorous, jubilant, uninhibited applause will break out spontaneously at the fall of Ashurbanipal. Has anybody ever heard of Ashurbanipal? No. Very few, very few have heard. He was the mightiest king in the world, and he fell, and he was buried. And he was insignificant at that point. And the king of Assyria is dead, and the people rejoice. And that's what happens when the Lord of hosts says, I am against you. <clears throat> but I'm not going to leave you there. That's some hard stuff, right? The book of Nahum has been a hard book. It's full of judgment. It's full of condemnation. It's full of justice. But I'm not going to leave you there. There is an alternative there is a way to avoid judgment. So that's what happens when the Lord of hosts says, I am against you. What happens when the Lord of hosts says, I am with you? Turn back in just a page back in chapter 1, verse 7. 
Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. He knows who? Those who trust in him. Picture the stronghold on a hill. This one is much stronger than Noaman. This one is much stronger than Nineveh. This one is much stronger than Jericho. This one is much stronger than the United States. This is the Lord God Almighty. And He knows those who trust Him. But how do we get in that stronghold? The problem is, apart from Christ, the Lord is against us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind, apart from Christ, we're at enmity with God. He has said, the Lord of hosts has said, apart from Christ, I am against you. And like I said, that is the most scary thing that you can hear. That is the most scary position you can be in. But I've said it before. Maybe my favorite statement in the Bible is, but God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you he made alive who were dead... And trespasses and sin. In in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's at enmity with God. That is God, the Lord of hosts, saying, I am against you. He said, verse 3, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Just as the others, God was against us. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You want to work? You're going to be against God. You want to work to try to fortify against the judgment of God? You will be absolutely, utterly destroyed just as Nineveh was, just as Noaman was, just as Jericho was, just as all the others who are perishing. But God, you want to know how you get in that refuge? You want to know how you get in that stronghold? You turn to Christ. He's the only one. He is the door. He is the stronghold. We don't have to have God against us. Praise God for that. He could have left us all. And he would have been completely justified in doing so. But we have a Savior 
We have a Savior. We have one who we don't understand how mighty he was that became a baby. We don't understand who he was. We can't. If we did, we would go and sin no more. But he came. He lived the life we couldn't live and he died. Why? So that you don't have to be against God. And so that God doesn't have to be against you. And so then there's, there's, that's it. That's the simplicity, the gospel. What do you do? You repent. You believe on the Lord Jesus. Do you believe on Him? And here's the great news. Many of you, most of you, all of you, I don't know, have made a profession of faith in Christ. And guess what? You're in that refuge. And when the judgment's coming, you're sitting up on a hill watching the destruction of Nineveh, and you don't have to endure it. Watching the destruction, but the scary thing is we all know many that God has said, the Lord of hosts has said, I am against you. What are we to do? We're to share this with them. There's a judgment coming, but there's an escape. And as we, as we close and as we, as we end the book of Nahum, I'm so glad that it didn't end there. That would have been an extremely hard book to preach if I didn't have Romans and Ephesians to turn to. Right? It would have been futile. It would have been hopeless. But he hasn't left us without hope. He's given us the love of Christ. He's given us salvation. And he gives us a new life, a new heart, and that now we can go forward. And so as I close, and and we'll take communion... Let us remember those things, and that's what communion is about. But remember this. Be thankful if you're not under the judgment. But if God is against you today, man, you got some things to think about. You have some real soul searching to do. And I'm just telling you, God has commanded you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you're an amazing God and that you've saved souls that did not deserve to be saved, which is all of them. God, I I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to endure the judgment, that you've given us a city on the hill that we can flee to. And I pray, God, that if there's any here who have not, if there's any here who your face is against right now, God, make them... Sit at your table. Cause them to kneel and join your side. God, as we know that you can do, you can work in the hearts and souls of people. I pray, God, that eyes would be open to the truth of the gospel, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.